My name is Ruth Wisher. It's my very great pleasure to be chairing this evening's event organised, as you know, by the Scottish Children's Reporters Administration, a body which looks after the children's hearing system here in Scotland. Now, the people involved in the SCRA are very well aware how much sense it makes um, to have a system where children referred to panel hearings are referred both for offending behaviour and because they're in need of care and protection. And the logic of that is quite simply because it's very frequently the same children. The SCRA's own report um, on the right track tells us of those young people put on the fast-track pilot scheme. Some as a result of repeat offending, um, and of them almost two-thirds had been referred on a care and protection ground when they were much younger. That same report tells us that a quarter of these children were first referred under the age of five, and that the bulk of them were referred between the ages of nine and twelve. Along with several other key reports in the last few years, we've had the same dispiriting but important conclusions. And that that is that damaged children, abused children, children poorly cared for are tomorrow's adolescent offenders and the day after tomorrow's difficult and sometimes dangerous criminals. So it's quite clear that early intervention in the lives of these children is not just essential for them but enlightened self-interest for us as a society. Now, the writer who's with us tonight knows that as well as anyone, because Alexander Masters, who wrote Stuart, A Life Backwards, has written a very compelling biography, as many of you will know, of a man called Stuart Shorter, who had a tragic, chaotic childhood and adult life, and who died equally tragically in his early 30s. We're going to have uh, questions and answers with Alexander later, but first of all, he's going to read you a passage from Stuart, A Life Backwards. Would you please welcome Alexander Masters? Thank you very much. This is uh, a passage I, I read um, fairly often. It's a, it's a good introduction to the book. It describes a little bit about Stuart. Um, it builds up, gives some sense of the difference between his life um, and my life. It's not that my life features in the book so much, but that the point of our friendship, what made our friendship remarkable, was that someone like me and someone like Stuart who'd lived on the streets and knew what living on the streets was like and had been through hell throughout his life could get on so well Um, I'm still not sure quite how to explain it but I feel I was um, very privileged to enjoy it and this opening chapter is an attempt to give a sense of the sort of person he was not someone who is easily categorised and not someone who despite the words tragic um, applying to him in many circumstances was entirely a tragic character. He was often an extremely funny person and also a profoundly intelligent person with a a wonderful gift for turn of phrase so he could make something that seemed difficult to to comprehend, particularly for someone like me who knew so little about this sort of life, into something resonant in a small couple of words. He could turn it so that it would send a shiver down your spine and you'd know exactly what he was talking about. Anyway, in this this case, he's just come round to my flat. Stuart does not like the manuscript. Through the pale Tesco stripes of his supermarket bag, I can see the wedge of my papers. Two years' worth of interviews and literary effort. What's the matter with it? It's bollocks, boring. He fumbles in the lumpy bulges of his pockets, looking for roll-up papers, then drops into my chair and pushes his face forward, surveying the drab collection of twigs and dead summertime experiments on my balcony. One arm remains as it landed, squeezed in beside his thigh. Outside it is getting dark. The trees in the garden have started to grow in size and lose their untended shapes. I don't mean to be rude. I know you put a lot of work in, Stuart offers. Put briefly, his objection is this. I drone on. He wants jokes, yarns, humour. He doesn't admire academic quotes and background research. Nah, Alexander, you've got to start again. You've got to do better than this. He's after a bestseller, like what Tom Clancy writes. But you are not an assassin trying to frazzle the president with anthrax bombs, I point out. You are an ex-homeless, ex-junkie psychopath, I do not add. Stuart phrases it another way, then. Something what people will read. There are numerous types of homeless person. There are those who are doing all right beforehand, but have suffered a temporary setback because their wife has run off with another man, or surprisingly often another woman. Their business may have collapsed 
Their daughter may have been killed in a car crash or both. Self-confidence is their main problem, and if the professionals can get hold of them in the first few months, they'll be back at work, at work and at least, or at least in settled long-term accommodation within a year or two. Men outnumber women 10 to 1 on the streets. For women, it is usually sex or battering or madness that has brought them to this condition. They are better at coping with financial failure and betrayal, or their expectations are more self-effacing. Then there are the ones who suffer from chronic poverty, brought on by illiteracy or social ineptness or what are politely called learning disabilities. Perhaps they are dyslexic, autistic, shy to the point of inanity, never went to school. They may be just ill or blind or deaf or dumb. They move from garden shed to bedsit, shelter to hostel to garage to friend's sitting room floor to the wheelie bins at the side of King's College. They are never quite able to rise above their circumstances. The youngsters who have fallen out with their parents or have come out of care and don't know what to do next or even how to make their own breakfast, they're a third homeless category. If they haven't, within six months, found a job or a room or a girlfriend to put them to rights, there's a good chance they'll be on the streets instead. Ex-convicts and ex-army take away the format of their lives and all they can do is crumple downwards. This is just the beginning. Right at the bottom of this abnormal heap are the people such as Stuart, the chaotic homeless. The chaotic are beyond repair. When Stuart was first discovered, Caspar Hauser-like crouched on the lowest subterranean floor of a multi-storey car park. The regular homeless wanted nothing to do with him. They called him Knife Man Dan and that mad bastard on level D. The chaotic have usually been to prison, but they are not career criminals. Stuart's conviction seat sheet is 20 pages thick, but he has only once stolen to make, make himself rich, and on that ridiculous occasion he scooped, after taking overheads into account, 500 pounds, or 100 pounds, for each year he spent behind bars as a result. Among the few staples in a chaotic person's life are heroin and alcohol. For some their habit is what has brought them low, or for others addiction is like a hobby taken up since arriving. The chaotic are not always poor, even if they are on the streets. During the three years I have known Stuart, my income has rarely exceeded his from the state. An unemployed man with a physical or mental disability or alcohol or drugs dependence can qualify for up to £180 a week from social services. On top of this, housing benefit pays the rent. What unites the chaotic is the confusion of their days. Cause and effect are not connected in the usual way. Beyond their own governance, let alone within grasp of ours, they are constantly on the brink of rearing up or breaking down. Charity staff bus especially hard over these people because they are the worst face of homelessness and, when not the most hateful, the most pitiable extremity of street life. Two years ago, Stuart was living out of skips. When the city outreach workers discovered him, he was a poly-drug-addicted, alcoholic, Jekyll and Hyde personality with delusional, delusional paranoia and a fondness for what he called little strips of silver. Knives, to you and me. He still is. But something quite remarkable has happened since then. He is not quite so much of a drug-addicted nightmare. No one can understand it. It is highly unusual, suspicious even. All chaotic people have good and bad periods, but Stuart genuinely appears to have turned over a new leaf. He has separated himself from the street community, got himself onto the council housing list, started a methadone program to get off heroin, renegotiated his court fines and begun paying Fort Lightning installments, bought himself a discount computer. None of this is normal. Many of Stuart's old friends would rather die than take a shower and pay debts, and quite a few do. Overdoses, liver or kidney failure or both, hypothermia. Rough sleepers have a life expectancy of 42 years. They are 35 times more likely to commit suicide than the rest of the population. In the great bureaucracy of the police and social support services, everyone is patting their backs at Stuart's extraordinary return from this medieval existence towards respectability, and secretly waiting for him to grab the nearest meat hook and run amok. Furthermore, not only has Stuart enough undestroyed brain cells left to describe what such a life is like, but he can pinpoint, almost to the hour, between 4 and 5 p.m., one weekday in early summer when he was 12, the symbolic moment when he made the change from, in his mother's words, a real happy-go-lucky little boy, always the considerate, very considerate one of her two children, into the nightmare clockwork orange figure of the last two decades. If his own life were not still so disordered, he could make good money explaining to parents what makes children turn into authority-despising delinquents. This is what I don't like, Alexander, observed Stuart, interrupting my thoughts and picking out a page from the dog-eared manuscript that he has now tipped on the floor. Joyriding! It concerns his adolescence. When he used to sneak around streets at night, smashing the windows of Ford Cortinas, I have opined, technically, 
Joyriding does not involve stealing a car because the person who takes the vehicle doesn't intend to keep it. He twocks it. It's an acronym that comes from the charge, taking a vehicle without the owner's consent. In the juvenile Joyrider, Jeff Briggs proposes, in addition to theft of the car's contents, five different categories of car crime. Twocking for profit is A. B, long-term twocking. C, twocking for the purposes of joyriding. D, twocking for use in other crimes. And D, utilitarian twocking. To date, Stuart has been guilty of C, D, and E. UT what sucks, Stuart, Stuart sucks in his cheeks for a final attempt. Utilitarian twocking, what's that when it's at home? I cut the passage. The accompanying flowchart entitled Dr. Kirkpatrick's Joyrider Progression Schematic, he dismisses with, looks like an airfix kit. He knows about airfix toy airplane kits. He used to sniff the tubes of glue from them. Kilpatrick hypothesizes that joyriding guides children into delinquency for the sake of interest, then delinquency for the sake of profit, and then adult crime, I see that I have written. It is one of the conduits of corruption from innocence to criminality. Stuart does not bother to comment on that one. And another thing he says, Yes, I say, do it the other way round. Make it more like a murder mystery. What murdered the boy I was, see? Write it backwards. So here it is. My second attempt at the story of Stuart Shorter. Thief, hostage taker, psycho and sociopathic street raconteur. My spy on how the British chaotic underclass spend their troubled days at the beginning of the 21st century. A man with an important life. I wish I could have done it more quickly. I wish I could have presented it to Stuart before he stepped in front of the 11.15 London to Kings Lynn train. Well, as Alexander just explained, ladies and gentlemen, Stuart's life backwards is exactly what this book is. It, um, it unpicks the accidents and incidents which shaped his life until we learn at the end of the book about his miserable childhood. And, and actually, Alexander, that was a very difficult thing to learn about because Stuart himself had managed effectively to block out the first 10 years of his life. He did, and it was uh, really quite problematic to, to piece the bits together. What he could remember, when he did remember, what he remembered was only the bad bits, which was really... It was horrible because as a, as a child, as a young child, he'd been a very happy young child up until about seven or eight. And apparently... Um, a very a lovely child, his mother obviously would say that. But uh, the, rel the, the people, the neighbours who live nearby said the same thing. He, would, he was good at going out and taking people's garbage out or mowing their lawns, and he, he kept himself to himself. And he was a charming little boy. And then the sort of the corruption came in, and his life just sort of collapsed. And he found it very, very difficult to talk about. And there would be certain things he would only talk about on certain days. And these days were the days when he knew he had money, could... Get, a, get his heroin so that if it was too problematic for him he could have a session of that afterwards and just calm down. One of the awful parts of this particular story is the fact that he became more seriously abused in an effort to escape abuse. He was being amused domestically. He took himself out of that environment and then it got worse. Yeah, and this was a thing that bothered Stuart all his life because he would, you know, he would he'd want to find out and it, just like I did when I was starting to do this book, I, basically my idea was, look, I'll, I'll take Stuart and I'll, I'll sort out what his problems are and um, I'll, I'll itemize them. There'll be one, two, three, four, five, maybe six, perhaps. And, um, you know, we'll deal with each of them and he'll be fine. Um, pack him off to a house and he'll be happy. And Stuart, you know, completely disabused me of that idea. But the thing that I hadn't realized that was the great complication that ran throughout his whole life is that he could, when he was drunk particularly, he would do this. He would, in effect, simplify his, his enemies. And he'd pick them out, and there would be these various people, and he'd want to, you know, do them in. But the thing that always... The, thing, the reason he had to get drunk to do that was because when he was sober, there was all this, this other complicating factor that actually he was the principal enemy, him, himself. Um, and so that... He, he, the abuse, the sense that he had invited it to some extent. And I, from what I understand, I, I must, I've got to emphasize, I don't claim to be an expert on homelessness or on you know, the abuse that um, Stuart went through. But one of the things that I found very interesting was this sense all the time that he couldn't quite give all the guilt to the abuser. 
it, he always had this sense that he had invited it somehow. And that if he had just done something slightly different, it would have happened. If he had done this, or he'd done that, or he'd done this other thing, it wouldn't have happened. And this continued throughout. So little incidents would, while we were friends together, um, little incidents would occur. There was one thing we were involved in where the, this pedophile was on this campaign we were working on together. And Stuart was racked with this sort of guilt that somehow he'd invited this chap on, that somehow something about Stuart attracted such people. And so this was a, a bothersome thing that ran throughout his life, beginning with his childhood, and why I think he just determined to forget as much as he could. One of the great sadnesses for you, I guess, must have been that as you got to know Stuart better, it became clear that he was an immensely articulate man despite his relative lack of formal education. And he was an immensely intelligent man, yeah. and yet neither of these qualities were able to save him from himself. They made it worse. He'd have been far better off if he was stupid. Really, he would have been. Um, and he couldn't, or he couldn't give a sort of resonant summary to himself about what had happened. If he could just be dull-witted, um, kind of thoughtless, he'd have, been, he'd have been much better off. It was this constant thought. I mean, I've never met someone who spends so much time analyzing themselves, not in an arrogant, egotistical fashion, just trying to make sense of it. And he couldn't do it. And yet his intelligence, and, and, and the worst thing was you couldn't palm him off with something that was some sort of little nice summary, you know, that you get, you get these trite phrases and you can usually palm people off with them. It wouldn't work on him. He, he saw through them immediately. And, and presumably the drugs and the alcohol were an attempt to dull that natural Yeah, wit. I think so. I mean, I think he also enjoyed them. Um, I don't want to make him out to be this sort of, sort of endlessly miserable fellow. He was also, he was, had fun. You know, I mean, his life, I think when he went on the streets... Um, it, was part, it was partly in a reaction to get away, largely, I suppose, in a reaction to get away from the things that had happened to him, but partly he thought, well, it's fun on the streets. You know, there are people who are sympathetic. There are people who are like me, people who I know, people who are not going to, well, they're not going to touch you up, for one thing, um, and people who are just, will sit around and talk. And I've met a number of people like that who say they like the streets because that's where people will talk to you. And they won't sort of judge you all the time and won't sort of try and put you in hostel rooms. <laughs> I'd like you to read another short passage, if right. you would, and then we'll let the audience um, okay, this have their say. Um, I thought about various, various passages to read. One was possibly the epilogue. Um, but this, I thought, given um, what this is about and the emphasis on children, this comes from uh, a section. I've got his, his school reports. He gave me his school reports. It was quite hard to get them, get them off him. Uh, and one of the schools he went to anyway I, I hope this is self-explanatory but I, I sort of messed around trying to figure out which bit it was for, so if, if some, suddenly some bit comes up that needs explanation I'll, I'll jump in and do the explanation in my first version of this book the one Stuart derided as bollocks boring Stuart made almost no changes to his copy of the manuscript the few written corrections he did suggest concerned this time in care homes after the age of 12 they read as if he is highlighting spelling mistakes in library books. Expelled, he has written above a sentence about Elmfield School. Not expelled, next to Kneesworth House. Not a school, a home, for Waterbeach. Remand hostel, beside Fitzwilliam Boys. Stuart's complains that he has been, been driven half to sleep by my awful sentences and lack of dramatic structure, but he hasn't put anything on the manuscript to help with that. It's as though only the labels of his past, not the evocations, can be fixed by writing anything down. His table manners, noted the headmaster at Elmfield, are poor. Throwing food and cutlery around and sometimes spoiling other people's dinner with salt or pepper, he dresses with reasonable care, although he will often wear dirty underwear. This also reflects his personal hygiene, outwardly appearing clean, but in reality, dirty. When teachers question his disruptiveness, he would show no response and on most occasions would continue with his threatening behaviour. Then if staff felt it necessary to physically restrain him, Stuart would lose his self-control completely and lash out at any person or object near him. It has been noticed on a couple of occasions that Stuart's eyes were actually rolling, and whenever questioned later, his memory of the previous events has been very poor. I used to go into such a state, just so I didn't feel nothing. Get yourself so fucking psyched out, you couldn't feel it when they were jumping on you, pinning you down. You just keep struggling, whatever pain or position you're in, you still try and wiggle and get out. I've been tied up in blankets like a straitjacket just so they don't have to have so many cat staff holding me down. The police have come and handcuffed me in Kneesworth House and handcuffed me ankles, hands behind my back. Then they used something like a bootlace to get the two together. Then they tied up a blanket round me on my chest so I couldn't do nothing. Then one just sat there and held me head. They always had to hold me head. 
His head, he boasts with a toothy smile, is me strongest muscle. Stuart's old supporter, Keith Lavrak, was now the principal at the next school, Midfield Assessment Centre. Keith Lavrak was a, a teacher who assessed difficult kids, and Stuart was taken to him at one point, and Keith Lavrak had made the very sensible suggestion that he ought not to be kept in a school for the physically disabled because he had a mild form of muscular dystrophy, but ought to be put in a proper school where he'd be amongst kids who were just as, you know, as able and fit as he was, and so could get on and do proper gym activities and, and wouldn't get teased so much by the children at his home village uh, who were ruthless about the fact he was going to a school for disabled kids. With Lavrak came hope. Lavrak had the intelligence to treat his pupils and their needs individually. He was the social services golden boy. Because of his height, the children affectionately nicknamed him, nicknamed him the giraffe. But not you, eh, Stuart, I remarked, becoming, as I periodically do, rather sated with his misfortunes. You didn't like him any more than any other teacher who had tried to help you, did you? Stuart shrugs and remains silent. You know what makes it difficult for me? You don't like spaggy school, understandable. This is what he called his own school where he went, spaggy school. So you get out of it. Your brother was horrendous. So you then demanded to be put in a children's home, understandable. What I don't get is that at the same time as wanting these things, you also turned against them and against your mother and your supporters, your parents, the teachers who were good to you, then to cap it all when you are in care and repeatedly, then you, to cap it all, when you are in care, you repeatedly run away, back home to where your brother was. His brother was his abuser. Explain that if you can. Stuart has no explanation. Running away from institutions may represent a compensation for dependency cravings, noted Keith Laverack in his thesis, obliquely revealed by the compulsive way absconders seek out further trouble and bring about inevitable recommitment to institutional cares. Laverack was a, um, he had a fellowship at Cambridge in social studies. Stuart nods. Might be that, he thinks. Sounds a bit glib to Stuart. When you've been brought up in the system, it's a very common thing that you're suspicious of everyone and their motives. When people get close, if you've been abused, you often set out deliberately to wreck the relationship. Oh, this bloody conspiratorial system, I say, frustrated. Linda, your outreach worker, she was part of the system, wasn't she? And you liked her, didn't you? Dennis, he's part of the system. You told me these two people helped get you off the street, saved your life. Win, your drugs counsellor, another system person. That's not my point, Alexander. Me, when I was working at the day centre at Willow Walk Hostel, I'm part of the system, aren't I? I pound on. Lavrak, he got you out of the school you hated, didn't he? Another system man. Other teachers, I've seen it in the reports, they tried to make life better for you. System men and women, everyone. Couldn't you see that? Couldn't you get any of the good? Distrust, yes, I understand. But why all this loathing before you've even given the people a chance? In fact, no, wait, let me finish. Your brother, your abuser. It's just about the only character in this whole story who wasn't part of the system. Isn't that the case? See, you ought to be thankful to the system. Don't you think? The system's been the safest place for you. Why not try and be nice about it for once in a while? A decade and a half after Stuart left Lavrak's parental care, the Nationals broke the story. Kids home sex sicko, jailed for 18 years. Keith Lavrak was convicted of 11 specimen counts of buggery and four of indecent assault against girls and boys. Terrible crimes tipped the iceberg. His actual offences probably numbered thousands. The giraffe lost interest when they had turned 14. The prosecutor compared him to Captain Hook in Peter Pan. He is never more sinister than when it is his most polite. The courtliness impresses even his victims. Even his victims on the high seas, who note that he always says sorry when he is prodding them along the plank. I have now told Stuart many times that he should see the lawyer who has been fighting Cambridge County Council to get compensation for Laverack's victims. This lawyer is someone I know, a courageous, tireless man. He has had three group actions already, secured over a million pounds, and will soon be starting on a fourth. Stuart shakes his head. He knows one person who gave evidence in a nonce trial to get compensation, and because of the memories, he ended up cutting himself to pieces and hanging himself. Also, Stuart finds it hard to be specific about what happened to him, because most of the time he was high on glue. One particular time, I'd been sniffing in a wood next to school. Something horrible happened, but I don't know what. I don't know if it was a member of staff or not. Something when I used to glue sniff. I used to see spunk all over the bag, and you weren't sure if you were tripping or if it was real. It used to make me physically sick. To some extent, he holds himself responsible. When I used to get pinned down and they used to touch us up, well, one of the dirty ones, he used to sit round me, right in me face and his bollocks and top of me gobber. It's hard to say. It. It's a horrible thing to admit. I made some of the abuse so easy for them because of my behaviour. 
They could justify bending me up or dragging me off somewhere quiet to pin me down. Looking back, that's exactly how it feels, is that I created it to the extent that it happened. You've got this young, violent little bastard who needs controlling. Stuart has, however, read the sneering remarks in certain papers about compensationitis and how, when claimants start making money, it just brings scum out of the woodwork, making up stories, looking for easy cash. That can be so wrong, he says quietly. Often, it's because the victim's seen that other people have got through it. Not all of them's hung themselves. They get the courage to have a go. Them later claimants could be some of the most abused. Most of his life, he says, he has spent trying to block my experiences of these schools out. Every day, every day, it's like a big war, what I'm always losing. The closest I have got to details is this. We are driving around the countryside together one day, and we passed Midfield School site where Laverack had been his headmaster. Stuart took me down the drive to have a look and became momentarily confused by the building, a dull, extended, typical piece of nasty council work. It is now used as an old people's home. It's different. Something's changed. Can't put my finger on it. Incidentally, I asked, how many times did you run away from here? That's it. That's what's changed. It's only got one floor now. They must have knocked the old structure down and put this one up. I remember now, because I had to tie the sheets together and climb out of my bedroom, because it was on the next floor up. That day, that was the only time I ever run off twice in one day. Why twice, I asked. Because the police bought me back from Girton the first time. The police always bought you back here. That was one time it happened. That's why I ran off a second time. Happened? You know, in the office, after the police had gone. What happened? In that chilling way that Stuart often manages to capture the essence of a thing, he says, I don't remember the face, only the movement. Ladies and gentlemen, as you can readily appreciate, for somebody as close to Stuart as Alexander has been, this is all quite um, difficult reading with an audience where he doesn't um, know any of us. Um, so um, I know that you're going to be gentle with him, with your questions. Um, and there is a, an athletic person somewhere with a microphone. Yes, there she is. And so if you'd be kind enough, um, if you want to ask a question, if you put your hand up and then wait for the mic to come to you so that everybody can hear it. Thank you very much. Could we have a little more light, please? Thank you. Thank you. I'm just wondering if you think that life makes more sense in reverse. <laughs> uh, I think in Stuart's case it does. I've not tried to think about it in others. As Stuart's, Stuart's was enough. It did, uh, just from the point of view of writing the book, it was a very clever idea of his because it not just that you got the sense of gradual exposure of someone's life working back to, to what turn out, in fact, as I'm sure many of you are aware, very typical sort of troubles that kids have and particularly chaotic homeless people have, but also because it, it managed to mimic, to some extent, the chaos of Stuart's life. You didn't have the ordinary cause and effect. You, you were always disrupted, as Stuart's life was always disrupted. So I was very conscious of the fact while I was doing the book that we might have a wonderful interview on Monday and get through all sorts of stuff, but I would have no idea where he'd be on Tuesday or Thursday or Friday. He might be in prison, he might be in hospital, he might be fine and come around for the interview we'd booked. So the backwards bit was very useful for Stuart in just sort of conveying some sense of this disruption. The other thing I found very useful in writing the book, which normally I would have thought beforehand was a horrible gimmick, and I don't like it when other people do it, is writing the f in the present tense. Because again with Stuart, there was that sense you, you, you couldn't, when you were when you knew him and were with him, you, you couldn't have this sense that you were, you were smoothing his life. You had to be constantly aware that you didn't know what was going to happen next. And to some way, if, I wrote a, if it had been written in the ordinary direction and in the past tense, it would have all those smoothnesses would have come in and I think um, been a bad way to describe someone like Stuart's life. More questions, please? Lydia in the aisle there. Um, I was wondering uh, if you thought that had Stuart lived, he would have allowed the details of his abuse to be published in the way that you have done? That's, that's a difficult question, I know, because... It no, it's a very good question. And, in fact, um, I worried about that too. But Stuart was... I regarded it, until Stuart died, which is about halfway through writing the book, as a joint project. And he regarded it as a joint project. And I remember when just after I first met him at this campaign meeting when we were campaigning for two people to be got out of prison, 
he came up and he said he wanted to be part of this campaign for these two people who are in prison. Um, but I had to know certain things about him. And then he, it was like laying cards out on the table. It was an astonishing thing. And he just laid out all his worst aspects on the table. And he said, you've got to know all these things because if this campaign gets anywhere, they might come up. And he had this terrible vision that the news of the world would suddenly come up and say, you know, Stuart's done this, that, and the other, and your whole campaign's rotten to the core, and so on and so on. So he, he confessed everything there and then, which is one of the reasons I immediately liked him, because I thought, well, boy, that takes some courage. Um, so I think he'd been, I mean, he read the first draft. It was boring, but it contained the details. And he saw that they were going to be in there. And he agreed, absolutely. It had to be completely, as far as he could make it, completely honest. I think, Alexander, it might be useful just to amplify that campaign. Um, Oh, right, okay. Because the campaign you know, got nationwide publicity, but also um, the effect or the rather contradictory effect you and he had in the audiences during the campaign. Right, yes. Okay, this, this was a, I was working at the time at a day centre for the homeless in Cambridge, and this is in fact how I got to know Stuart. And I'd been working there about three months as a fundraiser, nothing, nothing difficult at all. Um, I mean, I wasn't on the floor dealing with sort of homeless people. And uh, the police raided the place, came in, arrested about eight dealers who they'd filmed from a camera across the way, and then arrested the woman who was running the charity and the manager of the day centre of this charity. And I was spitting. I was so angry about this. Um, I hadn't really had a particular thing about homelessness before that, but suddenly this, I thought this, something had to be done about this. So I ran a campaign, and that sounds grander than it is. I mean, I and a whole load of other people worked on a campaign to get them out. Um, which I have to say Scotland was particularly good at supporting. And uh, I met Stuart at, the, at this, the first public meeting we had in support of these people who were convicted of knowingly allowing the distribution of drugs on the premises, which was they knew about the drugs on the premises because they'd been screaming and shouting about it in the local press, so that was easy to prove. Uh, they'd allowed the drugs on the premises turned out to be that they hadn't agreed with the police about the way drugs should be pre prevented from being on the premises. They had a different idea about how it should be done. And they were funded to support this idea of theirs, not to change the idea so that it fitted in with the police. I mean, maybe the police were right, maybe not. It doesn't really matter. The point is they were doing it in absolute honesty and because they felt this was the best thing. So um, they were sentenced to five years and four years. And Stuart came along to this first meeting where I um, held this public meeting, he stood up and gave a stunning speech, sort of describing the sort of things we ought to do and ought not to do. And then after this, the, um, we would go, I realized he was a, an important person to have on the campaign and I needed him like anything. And we ended up doing a double act, which is we'd go around and we'd give little talks in places. You know, we'd drive around, we'd went to Leeds and went to Oxford and went to Cambridge and, and you know, various little places. And uh, we'd sit up, and I'd, I'd be talking like this, or usually there'd be a lectern, and I'd get up, and I'd have my little poster and my little petition, which I'd be handing around. And I'd give 10, 15 minutes, and, you know, describing the bait, sort of just as I have done. And I'd get a little polite round of applause. And then, damn it, Stuart would stand up. And he'd give this stunning speech, which was about his life. And it just knocked people off their seats. And I always used to get really angry at Stuart at the end, because he got about 10 times the amount of applause <laughs> I did. But that's how we, this is how this campaign worked. And, and it, was, it was a nice sort of, it worked well. It and it worked. was successful. Yeah, it, it, um, we enjoyed it, we had fun. More questions, please. I think you've stunned them into silence. <laughs> Thank you. Do you think you're scarred at all by any of the disclosures that Stuart made? I mean, I know the book's about Stuart, but how have you coped with uh, all those horrendous facts that you've learned about? Well, it's, it's funny, because um, I can talk about it fairly easily and be quite brutal about it. But, I mean, I've read that first chapter, I don't know how many times. And the, the one in the middle, I haven't, I haven't read in a while, and I was sort of a bit wary about it. I didn't want to read the epilogue, because that does get me going. But I still, there's a bit in that first chapter I just cannot get by uh, without it sort of upsetting me. And so I find the reading really quite, it, it, it's there. I mean, I sort of pretty much managed to, you know. Yeah, it's, it was horrendous disclosures. And when you think, this was someone I knew and liked very much and, you know, who's very supportive to me as well, taught me all sort of things and was a great friend to me. And, and by the end, you know, I was borrowing money off him because I was poorer than he was quite a lot of the time. And, you know, we just ended up being, you know, close. And so I do find, I think I'm sort of strong and, and able to deal with it. And then I'll find, you know, one of these, last it has to be in front of a load of people, but um, it does get me, it does get me still, yeah. Actually, you've mentioned something that I wanted to ask you anyway, which was 
you know, we might guess from this what Stuart gained from you. What have you gained from Stuart? Um, oh, it's a nasty question, that one. Um, I mean, it certainly, I mean, just the friendship was worth it. The memories of the friendship, that was certainly, I mean, I gained a book from it as well, obviously. But um, I, mean, I, think a a I, I think as a friendship and as a sense of, of, um, of the importance of, I, I just think knowing someone who I felt was really important and who had been, who had emotionally been to a, been to so many extraordinary places that uh, it was it was a great education. I, I felt I'd, a lot of the time I felt I felt I was educating him in my way of life as well, and educating him about you know um, I don't know what I was educating him about, but I was educating him about something I hope, and and he was educating, but he was educating me all the time in in this sort of sense of how humans behave in extraordinary circumstances. So I think in a roundabout way, what I'm saying is I I ended up. I think getting a bit of a sense of how I might behave if, or what I would have to prepare for if I went through what Stuart went through. And I think this is what Stuart, when he would say to me, look, um, there was one point when we were doing this campaign and he'd say to me, um, look, if you're going to campaign about homeless people, you've got to get on the streets and find out about it. It's a load of nonsense you standing up here and pontificating if you haven't been on the streets. And I had a sense that that was a message he wanted, not just in terms of, yes, it's dusty on the streets and actually it's surprisingly easy to sleep on the streets the first night. Um, and you've got to have cardboard underneath. You don't put it on top of you like I was doing. Uh, all these sort of, I was pretty basic. Um, but just this sense of, of, of how, how people behave in these extraordinary circumstances, I think was something he taught me to think about, to think about in his terms and think about what other people might have been through. I think that's another thing. Sorry, this is sort of a waffly answer because I, I, it slightly put me off guard. Um, oh, good. <laughs> uh, I think another thing would be, which is related, is the sense that if you see someone on the streets, which sometimes I'm asked what I think the message of the book is, and I, I don't know if it has a message. Um, but if it had a message, it would be the same as the message that Stuart, I feel, um, one way you could say what he taught me, which is that if you see someone, you don't immediately summarize them. I know it, it sounds really trite to say it, and we're all taught not to do it, but it's really hard to avoid doing and I learned from Stuart time and time and again, I thought I got his number. I thought I figured it out. I thought, ah, got it. That's the thing there. You've got to deal with that or blah, blah, blah. And he would completely upset it. And I realized I hadn't thought it through. And that happened so often that I ended up feeling that was a, a great education and, and certainly worthwhile because I feel it's passed over into other things. I'm, I'm much less, I'm much more doubtful. But I, I find I learn a lot more since getting to know how to get stuff out of Stuart. At what point in your friendship, Alexander, did you understand that Stuart wasn't an individual, but that Stuart was emblematic of a whole range of children who get into that kind of situation because of what they've had to go through as children? Well, this, uh, I mean, Stuart was saying this, and I thought, well, OK. But I, I got to know about it when I'd, I then, after this campaign and after they got out, after seven months, I have to say, um, so thank you to Scotland for all the support you gave. Uh, I went and worked in a, a homeless hostel on the floor, properly doing the proper work. And then I began to see there were just stewards everywhere. You know, they were just all over the place. Or aspects, fragments of him, and in some cases much worse than Stuart. And um, I think in the end, Stuart, again, another point in which Stuart was helpful was realizing that it was no good taking such words, you do this thing called key working, which I, again, I suppose many, you know, all of you, or a good portion of you know about. But you take someone in for a key working session and you'd sit down and you think, right, right, I've got to tell this chap, you've got to stop taking drugs. Um, you've got to start taking a bath. You've got to go out and do job search and all this sort of thing. Forget it. You know, Stuart taught me, just forget that. Just try and figure out. Imagine if what I found useful was to try and say, well, look, instead of saying what that person ought to do, imagine what would have put me in his place and then find out if I can understand where, what I'm imagining parallels what he's gone through. And then you stood a bit of a better chance. And I think that was a very valuable lesson to learn. More questions, please. Somebody here? In terms of care and protection of children, do you think there was any point in Stuart's life where there could have been some intervention to stop him falling down that hole? The bit in the book that I'm thinking about in particular is where he's been sexually abused by his brother and his babysitter. 
So he begs to go into a care home and then it happens, the abuse happens in the care home. But at that point I thought, why did his mum, why did he not tell his mum? He seemed to have a good relationship yeah. with her. But to stop it happening with other children in the future, yeah. is there anything that anybody could do to protect children more than he he obviously wasn't protected. I mean, I, th I think things have changed a bit because this was in the 70s, so the late 70s. It started. And, I mean, just no one knew. It was an erratic child who was behaving this way one day and this way the other day. So signs that now people are quite used to picking up and thinking, oh, we've got to be wary about that and do something about that. They just didn't know about them. So I think things have got better in that respect. Um, what could... I mean, there's always more, one can be more vigilant and so on, it's, but it's impossibly difficult. How do you tell, I mean, it's so unexpected. How's, how's his mother supposed to tell? You know, one son abusing the other, I mean, it's inconceivable. How that woman has survived, she, to me, is a great hero because she has survived through this impossible situation. I think where, if you had to pick this business of Lavrak, the abuser Lavrak, when he went into the care home, that was simple council cowardice. They wouldn't sack this man people started to know they wouldn't deal with him they wanted to pass the buck it's you know typical bureaucratic stuff that happens all that I don't know how you stop it you have to change the minds of people who do that or put in courageous people or stop trying to make everyone bureaucratic sort of morons really I mean I, I don't know how you deal with it but it, I mean I think there there's possibility of some some work that could be done that you just need this to stop this desire to sheepishly follow what went before, and they would have picked Lavrak up earlier, because complaints had been made about him many times, and they wouldn't believe anyone. As a mother, that's well, all she knows is she's got a wild child on her hands. Yeah. I mean, you're living in the fence. You don't. You don't I mean, in the 70s, you don't think one child's buggering another. You think, I've just got a difficult child on my hands. What can I do? I'll do everything I can. I'll get this counsellor, and I'll get that counsellor, and I'll, I'll send him off to... You don't expect the person you send him off to is also going to be an abuser. I mean, I just think it's an impossible situation. I don't know how she could have possibly told. Except now, with this sort of sense of, oh, if you, you see those signs, you look for them, you deal with them. Um, and his sister, who was also abused by that brother, uh, says she can spot... I don't know whether she's right, but says she can spot amongst children immediately the ones she'd worry about. But that's modern knowledge. It wasn't around then. More questions? Yes, just here. Thank you. Hello. Um, my disclosure is I've not read the book. I've got that still to look forward to. But I'm just wondering, Stuart obviously had... Um, you know, a, a struggle, a, a garden of Gethsemane to walk through. Um, and most of us in those situations um, have to make choices, perhaps by uh, putting in positive things so that we can walk the struggle and be supported by that. Y you've described Stuart as turning or reacting, perhaps, you know, violent behaviour, um, alcoholism, heroin. Did he make any positive choices? Any? Uh, did he put in anything positive, non-destructive things to help him cope with the struggle? Oh yes, absolutely. And I, um, I should have read more to emphasise that, and that is there are, there are passages in the book that describe that absolutely. And I think in that first bit, the sense of him having recovered to quite an extent, and, and, and how it struck workers, um, you know, care workers and social workers in that area in Cambridge as being quite a remarkable thing that Stuart seemed to be so capable had such strength that comparatively he didn't well he joined this campaign I mean he was it, it wasn't I'm not it wasn't a, a nice little patch and nice little sweet homeless man you know got him to help us on the campaign he was a serious part of it and he came and he proposed all sorts of really good things he was our, on quite a number of the things he was the person who liaised with the police he was much better at dealing with the police than I was He'd, he'd know exactly, he'd, and the police liked him. You know, there's some police who didn't like him, some police who did. And in fact, at his funeral, a couple of police people came. Um, he was very good at that, and he was so he's constantly trying to to do things. But there was this constant sense that of of this. If he just hadn't been so smart, I really wish that sometimes that he'd just been stupid. He wouldn't have been this constant. There wouldn't have been this constant analysis. But all the time, he was trying to 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 improve things, to get things better to do things. I mean, he joined the campaign because he wanted to help Ruth and John because they'd helped him. It's a positive thing. He was always doing them. And as a master stroke, it was Stuart who suggested camping on the street outside the yes, home Yes, exactly, office. it was, yeah. To, um, to collar Jack Straw. 
who we never met, unfortunately. <laughs> Still, it would be a bit of an embarrassment, hopefully, outside the window. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't more think we were the first. <laughs> more questions? Yes. Um, there's lady at the back and then somebody at the side. Or alternatively, a lady at the side and then somebody at the back. <laughs> Stuart's comment about what he got from living on the street that he didn't get, to paraphrase it slightly, from the, from the system... What do you take from that? What should we take from that? What? What should we take from that? Um, God, I think there are endless, endless things to take from that. He, um, a, f- a friend of Stuart's, who's in the book, I called him for some reason Asterix, stupid name, but he, w- he was called somebody else. And I met him recently, and uh, he got into a house outside on the edge of Cambridge and I wanted because I ran for a while a street magazine in Cambridge where I did a lot of interviews with people and edited them and typed them up and he was very interesting and I wanted him constantly to do this piece which he still hasn't done but I hope he will do one day which is why so often if someone who's been homeless gets into a house they're there for a little while and then they'll trash it and leave and they desperately want to get back on the streets and you think for Christ's sake you know the whole point is you're called homeless you need a home and actually, it's not the case. And um, he was very good at explaining it. In fact, I think better than Stuart on this one, because I was more aware of it by the time I was um, asking him about it. And his great sense was that if, if people... It's, it's a terrible thing. It's rather like if you're suddenly asked to go live in Novosibirsk or something, you know, somewhere off in the far end of Russia, and you've got to do it tomorrow. It's going to be a darn nice house out there. It's going to be great. You're going to have all the things you want, but it does happen to be on the other side of Russia. Um, and that, I think, happens to... So, so quite a lot of people, it's not quite so distant, but it's, the effect is almost similar. You, you take someone out of a community and you put them in a completely different community, and it's going to utterly disrupt their lives. They're not going to be left with anything to hold their lives together. Something has to be done so that there is... I'm not coming to an answer because I don't have an answer, but something has to be done so that for someone like Stuart or someone like this fellow who I call Asterix that he goes out and he doesn't lose all his friends. He doesn't lose his sense of belonging. And that happens too much. And he said that why he, this bloke, always was tempted to go back to the streets was because it was like Britain used to be. People would, in effect, they talk to each other over the garden fence, only it was over a can of beer on the street. And in where he is in this estate now on the edge of Cambridge, no one talks to each other. You know, they're all absolutely all tied up in their little thing. They'll come out and take, put their washing up and take their washing down and run back in. It's completely unsocial. And so somehow, I think, for someone like this or someone like Stuart getting into a house, there needs to be some sense that you're, the person comes into a society where they don't have to start all over again. Somebody at the back. Sorry, I'm just backtracking a bit and trying to get back to the abuse issue. I think it's so awful you can't understand what makes somebody an abuser. Was the brother abused by the babysitter before he became the abuser? And do we know was Laverick abused? You just can't comprehend what could make somebody do that to another human being. The brother was, you're right, Mm. the brother was abused. Um, Not that long before. And... uh, I, d- I mean, whether it makes him or whether he's that way inclined already, I don't know. Um, but the brother was, and Lavrek, I don't know, I, I, have, I don't care what made Lavrek like he was. I just wish he'd go away. Um, I have no sympathy for You know, there's a point which I, I just... No, 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 I know, I know you weren't. I know you weren't. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's too. I mean, I, I, I couldn't possibly answer that question. I'd love to be able to. Maybe and Stuart. Maybe we could pick up specifically on a point as in, in Stuart's case, then Alexander, because um, obviously what happened in his childhood impacted and hugely on the rest of his life in every kind of way. But I think probably it specifically impacted on his ability to make adult relationships. Oh yeah, yeah, and um, he had terrible troubles, <laughs> and, and his sister also had terrible troubles, and still. She's got a lot better um, with her own children. She won't touch them or she wouldn't touch them for a long time because she was just terrified about herself. Maybe there was some aspect of this in herself and terrified also what the neighbours would think. But it was mainly she was worried about herself and that again was, I think, Stuart suffered from that. And also Stuart, um, his relationships tended to be with people who weren't stable. 
Um, I suppose because no one who was stable would want to go out with Stuart. I mean, it's a nightmare to go out with Stuart. And, and this compounded, so you had this double sort of catastrophe. Actually, that's not fair. That's not fair to say that because his first girlfriend, who was the mother of his child, was stable. Um, she was, I think, a bit odd in taking an interest in Stuart, but I felt she was a bit odd, and she was good for him for a while. Um, then Stuart messed that up royally. Um, I don't know if I can... It might be nice, I think, because we're almost out of time here, Alexander, and you've brought up the question of um, Stuart's son. He's not, of course, named in the book because his mother didn't want that, and you've respected that judgment. But I think without going into details about his identity, I think it might be rather nice to, to end um, on, a, on a positive note about Stuart's legacy, if you like, and if you, if you told the audience about his son. Yeah, I mean, his son, he was extremely fond of his son. Uh, he had a great hopes for his son. I mean, they, they hardly ever met. And Stuart, uh, it's not surprising, considering what Stuart did to this boy, which is not, I hate to add, sexual at all, but a, a, a terribly violent episode in which all sorts of disastrous things happened. He ended up going to jail for a long time. And this plagued him and, and horrified him for his whole life. But he was terribly, terribly proud of this this chap and, and always keen to make sure he was going to do well in the world and, and was insisting that, you know, um, he go to and do business education studies and go to university and not end up like Stuart. And Stuart was going to be tyrannical as a father. It was probably the best he wasn't around for him because he'd have just been horrible. But um, recently he's, he's got back in touch with the family. And this happened a little while ago. And he arrived down at the family and he's, he's a lovely bloke. He's, he's got Stuart. Stuart had muscular dystrophy. He's got muscular dystrophy as well, but a, a, again, a mild form. And uh, he hasn't attacked himself with heroin and everything else in the meantime. And he's um, studying to do, or he's just finished his degree in PE management and, and is apparently just a lovely, mild, very charming bloke. And, you know, it was a great joy to his grandparents and um, a great shame that Stuart couldn't see that everything he'd hoped for had been realised. Ladies and gentlemen, there will be another opportunity to talk to Stuart, um, both at the little reception adjacent here, but uh, more specifically and immediately in the signing tent, which is just outside here, where you can get copies of this. I have to apologise for my copy of uh, Stuart, A Life Backwards, because it's not that I'm so agitated that I've been eating it, <laughs> but my puppy has. <laughs> so Alexander very kindly drew a cartoon inside the front cover of my puppy eating his book, <laughs> a book chewed frontwards as it happens. <laughs> Would you please join me in thanking Alexander Masters? And if you'd be so kind as to remain seated just for a couple of minutes till Alexander gets the signing tent, gets his pen ready, gets a drink in his hand and, is, and receives his public... I want to get that photographer. <laughs>